Father, we praise you for your word and we pray now that you would speak clearly to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see who Jesus is, why he came, what it means to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, the city of Naples in Italy is famous for its very large and detailed nativity scenes. You might be familiar. They're called Presepi. And uh, a few hundred years ago, they started with just the traditional manger scene. And then they started to kind of imaginatively add people. So uh, they began with kind of local, well-known Neapolitan figures, the town mayor, the butcher, the baker, that kind of thing. They set it in Naples, kind of recognisably in Naples with the buildings. They added kind of pasta makers next to the Magi, uh, children crowding the scene, and it kind of, it just kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, today, as they continue with this tradition, you'll find huge uh, scenes with, with policemen and firemen and soldiers and all kinds of things, and even world leaders. And a couple of years ago, they had this one with uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. I'm sure they've updated them since then. A friend of mine is a missionary in Naples, and he tells us how a few years ago, one, there's one particular famous scene uh, that's in a museum, in the, in the museum in Naples, it's kind of the biggest one that they have. Hundreds of little figures, and they actually lost the baby Jesus that is meant to go at the heart of the scene. So there were all these figures from the city and the wider world, and then there was the magi and the shepherds and the angels and the animals and the proud parents, but no baby disappeared. He was missing. And of course the question was, did anybody notice in this incredibly busy scene that the baby wasn't actually there? And it's a question we need to ask about our lives, isn't it? Jesus should be at the centre, but is the reality that everything else distracts and crowds in and he gets quietly forgotten? It's a question too for the church. You know, instead of nativity figures, the world of church gets filled up with all kinds of good things and good activities, with services and sermons and hospitality and home groups and evangelistic events and coffee and Christmas trees. And these are all great things, fantastic things. But what is at the centre? Well, who is it all about? Who is it all for? Whose church is it? Is it all for and about and driven by Jesus, or has he been quietly sidelined and forgotten? Well, we've reached the end of this series in Matthew 14 to 17, which has been all about Jesus building his church. When you hear church, don't think building, think people. We've seen both conflict and confusion, conflict with outsiders who have a different agenda, who don't want Jesus at the centre, who want to build their own DIY religious system, but then confusion as well from insiders, not grasping who Jesus is or why he's come. The verses that we heard have a fair number of puzzles, don't they? Did you hear that? They might have grabbed your attention. You know, you can tell mountains to move. Something about a coin inside a fish. What is going on? Well, the, the thing that brings the whole section together is the thing that's been the theme throughout these chapters. Jesus is building his church. We've heard that before, we've been here, but the, here the point is, Jesus is building his church, not you. That is what we see here. He's at the centre. It's all about him. It's his church. So don't let church be like the nativity scene where Jesus somehow gets forgotten in all the activity and the noise. And the reading we heard shows how it's Jesus who's building his church, not you. 
in three ways, in the three sections it breaks down naturally into. So here's the first thing. He's the one with the power. Jesus is building his church, not you. He's the one with the power, verses 14 to 20. Earlier in the Gospel, the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples with authority to drive out impure spirits and also to heal every disease and sickness. And this seems to be a particular authority that he gave only to this particular group of his followers. It wasn't a universal thing for every follower, it was those 12 and it's significant that when we come to what we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the commission is to make disciples, baptising and teaching. This kind of specific authority to do the miracles he's been doing is not repeated then. We don't hear much of what actually happens in response to being sent out in chapter 10 until now. And it seems that on the face of it, things are not going all that well. So here's this boy suffering seizures, more than mere epilepsy, which they certainly knew about in the ancient world as a disease. This, these are seizures that cause him to fall into fire and water. Do you see that in verse 15? There is a demon, there's an evil spirit involved. And despite being sent out to cast out evil spirits, the disciples find themselves unable to do so. And Jesus is frustrated. In Exodus, Moses went up a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and there was a vision of God and he came down to find his people worshipping an idol, the golden calf. And now in this chapter, Jesus has done something similar. He's gone up to the top of a mountain. There's been a vision of God, that's Jesus himself, at the top of the mountain as he's transfigured, as we saw last time. And now he comes down the mountain and he finds his followers disappointingly falling short. And this time unbelief takes the form of failing to trust as they've been called to. And Jesus is frustrated. He says, how long? How long? It's like the Psalms, you know, the psalmists who cry out, how long, Lord? How long? How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? But then he says, bring the boy here. And just as on many other occasions, the boy is instantly healed. But the punchline here it not just the healing, it's what then happens next. The disciples have a question and Jesus answers it. The question is this, what are we doing wrong? Why couldn't we drive it out when we were sent out to do exactly this kind of thing? Answer, because you have so little faith. But the thing then is that we so easily hear that as saying, you know, come on, you just need to believe a bit more, you need to work a bit harder, then you'll get some power, put a bit more elbow grease into that faith. You know, like someone who thinks they can move an object. You know, there's a, um, a piece of paper there, and I'm really focused on it hard, maybe I can make it move. It's like, no, come on, hard, work hard, maybe it will happen. Well, of course it won't. Jesus isn't quite saying, you know, come on, put some more elbow grease into your faith. Because what he says is, you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. And a mustard seed is the smallest known thing in that world. What would that be for us? It would be an atom, or maybe a quark. You know, John can tell us afterwards what the smallest possible thing we can conceive of is. But Jesus is saying, you only need that kind of level of faith. In other words, vanishingly small, but still greater than zero. And what will happen? 
You'll be able to move a mountain. Parliament Hill, get up and walk. Nothing will be impossible. Now, again, you can read these verses kind of out of context and think, well, what is Jesus saying then? Is he saying, literally, I can go go to the top of Parliament Hill and sort of move it to the left slightly? Is that what this is about? Well, no. The issue is, why is he saying this here, and what does he mean by it here? The issue here is that their faith is essentially non-existent. That's what he's saying. So they only need a mustard seed's worth, and the, the reason they only need a mustard seed's worth is because of the one in whom their faith is supposed to be in. Jesus is the one with the power. It's not their faith that actually makes the difference. That's what it means here in these verses. So this isn't saying, you know, come up with your own big plan, believe it and it will happen. It's saying, whatever big thing Jesus has given you to do, put your tiny mustard seed faith in big, powerful Jesus, and then, of course, it will happen. One writer puts it like this, it's like looking at the moon. If you want to look at the moon, the size of the window that you're looking out of really doesn't matter. You know, you could be looking through a floor-to-ceiling panoramic glass wall in your dream bedroom renovation. You could be looking through a tiny crack in the brickwork. It's the same moon. And if you're on the wrong side of the house, you won't see the moon, however big your window is. But if you're on the right side, all you need is a tiny crack. You only need mustard seed faith because Jesus is the one with the power. And he's building his church, not you. Maybe he'll use you, Matthew is saying. Maybe he'll give you a job to do, like he did with the disciples. But don't lose sight of what's going on. It seems that with the disciples, they had lost sight of the one in whom the power rested, the one from whom the power came. They thought somehow it was down to them to do this. Why couldn't we do this? They ask, because you're not putting your faith in the right place. You start to think this is your job, your show, your task, you're going to fall flat on your face. Now Christians today don't have that same kind of authority over evil spirits or over illness that he gave those original twelve disciples. But we've been given authority to proclaim his good news about Jesus to the world around us. And yet so often what happens is we kind of give it a go and uh, it seems it doesn't seem to kind of work like we want it to or think it should and our friends kind of tell us or imply that we're a bit crazy and we don't know what to say, whatever it is. And we think, oh, I must be doing it wrong. And we give up and we we get discouraged. And and what's going on there, of course, is that we're thinking, it's down to me to build this church, it's my job and I'm not very good at it. And so we give up because it doesn't seem to work. Well, the message of these chapters has been, Jesus is building his church. And here we see, he's the one with the power. So trust him. That's the message. Can you see? Maybe we get anxious about our non-Christian friends or families or loved ones. They, you know, they don't seem to be responding to the gospel as we like. He's the one with the power. Have we put it in his hands? Have we left it with him? It's wonderfully liberating to be able to do that. To be able to say, this isn't down to me whether I can drag them into the kingdom. It's him. Put it in his hands. That's what prayer is about. It's about saying to God, this is with you. I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep trusting him. And if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, 
realise that this is what it looks like to do that. It's realising that he's the one with the power. Trust him, not yourself. That is the first thing that we see here. So Jesus is building his church, not you. He's the one with the power. Then secondly, he's the one who died and rose. Verses 22 to 23. This is the second thing that sets Jesus apart as the one who is building his church. For the second time, Jesus tells his followers, me being the Messiah that you've been waiting for and having all this power that you've seen me display, me being that Messiah means I'm going to be handed over to people who are going to kill me and then I'll rise from the dead. And still they don't get it. This is the thing we have to understand about what it means for Jesus to be the one with the power who is building his church. Because both for them then and for us now, power is something to be suspicious of, not trusted. Power is what the Roman occupiers have. Power is what the shadowy elite controlling the world, whoever they are, that's, that's what they have. Power is what my boss has, maybe, and the way that he uses it or she uses it is not good news. It doesn't always feel like good news. Maybe even power is what has been used or misused or abused against me in some way in my past by someone I thought I could trust. We need to understand what kind of power Jesus has. And can you see it's the kind of power that spends itself for others, for the world. There's no no accident that in the middle of all this talk about power, and we'll see more about this in a moment in the last section as well, in the middle of it is this description of what Jesus did with his power. He gave it all up for the world. See, the power that we are used to so often gathers for itself consolidates itself for an even better position, exploits others for selfish gain. That's the power that we're used to. But here's the one with all the power that he could possibly have, and he gives himself up. He sacrifices himself. Compare this kind of power with, say, Muhammad, for example. There's a list online with evidence of the 43 people whose deaths Muhammad is linked to in some way. That's what he did with his power. By contrast, the only death Jesus is linked to is his own. And so as we think about Jesus building his church, and we think about what kind of church, what kind of people he is building, we need to realise, we so easily think it means building something that is impressive, and looks strong outwardly to the world. You know, we want to talk about numbers. We want to talk, oh, there's so many people. We want to talk about successes. You know, yes, you know, oh, oh yes, I've had a fantastic week, a fantastic year, no sweat, everything's rosy, everything's fine. I mean, living a perfect life. And, and that is odd because we follow a saviour who didn't use his power to make himself look impressive, but the very opposite. If Jesus is building his church, and Jesus is the one who died and rose, what will the culture of that church that he's building look like? 
Will it be one where we all have to try and put a brave face on and prove our strength to one another and to God the whole time and never be honest about the real sins and struggles we face day to day and week to week, you know, kind of keep the game face on in case anyone discovers what we're really like? Is that what it means to be a member of the community of the King who died and rose? Jesus is building his church, not you, not me. He died and rose, and that means we don't have to keep pretending. We can be real. Because at the cross, our sins were dealt with if we're trusting him. There's no need for pretense. I'm struggling personally right now with my hip. So one of my hips, well, they've both been resurfaced, kind of Andy Murray style. Uh, but one of them, done 15 years ago, seems to be wearing out or something like that. It's frustrating. A part of me just wants to say, you know, stiff up a lip, ignore it, pretend it's not happening. You know, part of me thinks I should be somehow ashamed of weakness. What are you struggling with? You don't have to tell everyone. But have you told someone about the thing, whether it's a particular sin, whether it's a particular situation? Being part of this community of the King who died and rose, who used his power and gave it up for others, means that, that we're free to be ourselves with one another. Jesus is building his church. He's the one with the power. He's the one who died and rose. We don't need to be ashamed of weakness. We serve a weak yet supremely powerful Saviour. It's only when we admit our weakness, not our strength, that we're able to understand what Jesus came to do. To transform the greatest weakness into the greatest power. And that's where we land finally in, in the last paragraph in the reading. Jesus is building his church, not you. He's the one who died and rose, verses 22 to 23. And then finally, he's the one who is above all others, verse 24 to 27. Some religious leaders want to have another prophet Jesus, so they come to him. He's a question about tax. Do you pay the temple tax? Which means, are you going to submit to the religious system as it is, where we're in charge and you do what you're told, or are you going to defy it? In which case we can legitimately take action against you, which is what we're longing to do. It's a similar question to the question that comes in Luke's Gospel. Is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? Only this time it's focused on the Jewish temple system, where the temple tax was not something commanded in the law, but had been added by human tradition. Peter gives an initial yes, but then Jesus later helps him think it through. Apparently, even before Peter has a chance to tell him about the conversation, verse 25, Jesus was first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And the answer, of course, is from others. And the children are exempt, says Jesus. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he's saying taxes are what inferior subjects pay, not family members. It's the same in this country, isn't it, with the royal family, actually, and especially the Queen. Does the Queen pay income tax? Well, no, not technically, because she's exempt. Because she's the crown. She's the one in whom, in whose name taxes are collected. So, you know, what does HMRC stand for? It stands for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. The clue is in the name. 
So she doesn't actually pay tax to herself and to her government. Although, interestingly, since 1993, she does actually voluntarily pay the equivalent of what she would pay if she had to pay income tax. And Jesus actually says something similar here, if you look. He says, I'm exempt, but in order not to cause offence at this point in verse 27, I'm going to pay anyway. So what's he doing by saying that? He's saying he's choosing his moment for conflict. You know, he is the king. He doesn't need to submit to this system. But right now is not quite the time to choose the kind of offence, to to, to cause the kind of offence that will eventually lead to him being crucified. But his point is bigger even than that. You see, the reason that he's exempt is he's a king with a whole new administration that is above any earthly system, religious or otherwise. He's not going to fit into the temple tax system. They're going to have to fit into his system. Do you see? And then what then follows is this slightly bizarre instruction to Peter about going to catch a fish in which you'll find the money necessary to pay off the tax collectors for him and Peter. Because right now is not the time to cause offence. That time will come, but it isn't yet. So go and get the money out of the fish, he says. Now what? What's going on with that? Well, it could be a couple of things. It may just be a straightforward demonstration of his power. So, you know, look how great Jesus is that he can put a coin in the mouth of a fish. And it might sound a bit strange, but if he can rise from the dead, well, he can certainly do that, can't he? That's the way he chooses to get the money to pay the, the temple well. So, yeah, that's what he can do. But just note, normally when Jesus is recorded doing a miracle... Uh, normally, you know, particularly if he says something's going to happen, go and do this, what, what normally happens is that Matthew or the Gospel writer will then record what actually happened after Jesus has said that, to kind of prove that what Jesus said, uh, you know, did come about. Actually, here, that doesn't happen, it just gets left. Just instruction gets given and, and moving on. So it's possible that rather than being literally just a description of what Peter was to do in order to pay the tax, it may actually instead just be a joke. It may be that just Jesus is finding a way to say neither, no, we're not going to pay, which would hasten the conflict he's not yet ready to have, but also at the same time, he's not yet saying, he's not saying, yes, certainly here's the money. Do you see? Instead, he may be using a kind of slightly flippant joke about where Peter might find some money, both to delay conflicts, but also, by putting it like this, to kind of belittle the temple system. Oh, I could just have some money out of a fish. But there was some money, I'll oh, just go and get it out of the fish. You know, it's that sort of slightly taking the mickey out of the system. Either way... Now, we may probably can't quite be sure exactly um, you know, which of those two options it is. You know, it, it, he, he has the power, clearly, to do this if he wants to. But if he has just got that kind of thing in mind to kind of cleverly delay the, the response, um, to make the point, the point overall, either way, is he's the boss. He's in charge. Things are going to be done on his terms. He's supreme. He's above all this. He's above all. 
The bottom line then for us is this, isn't it? We, you know, like the nativity scene in Naples, so often we treat him and we think of him in exactly the opposite way from this. As if we'll get to him when we've done everything else. And we pay our taxes, not just to HMRC, but in, we pay our taxes of time and energy to our employers and our hobbies and our interests. But if we're trusting in Jesus, we are king, children of the king of the world. Why, why then does he come so often a kind of distant last place in our decision-making and our priorities and our hopes and dreams and aspirations? If this is new to you or relatively new to you, that is what Jesus claims to be. Not one option among many, but the one above all. Jesus is building his church. Not you, not me. He's the one with the power. He's the one who died and rose. The one who is above all. And that should give us great confidence. It should make us want to keep clearing away distractions and compromises so that he can be seen clearly at the centre. Clearly at the centre of our lives. Clearly at the centre of our church. Let's just pause to reflect before I leave us in prayer. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Lord Jesus, this is your church, we want it to be all about you. This is your world. These are your lives, we belong to you. So may we live recognising that you're the one with the power. You're the one who died and rose. You're the one who is above all others. May that be clear from the way we live. May that be clear from the way we are as a church. May you remain at the centre of all that our lives are about. Amen.